Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Bunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the architect Sam Chermayev. Sam grew up in New York in the 80s and 90s, steeped in modernist design culture, as the son of preeminent graphic designer Ivan Chermayev and the grandson of architect Serge Chermayev. Sam set out to find his own voice as a designer, first in Texas, where he studied architecture at the University of Austin, before moving to Tokyo to work at the architecture practice SANA, where he stayed for five years, and where he met his business partner, Johanna Myers Groberger, with whom he now practices in Berlin. Chemayev and Groberger have both separate and shared practices, and it was in a building they designed together in Berlin, a housing complex known as Khufu 142, that I met Sam last month to talk more about his independent work. The building we were in is a riotous jumble of interlocking towers, seven and eight stories in height, that afford surprising views across apartments and create strangely intimate relationships between their volumes. Standing in a kitchen, there might be an enclosed mezzanine above you, accessible by stair, although part of that mezzanine might in fact be your neighbor's bedroom. Similarly, the rooftop garden, which is technically accessible to all residents, is arrived at through a chain of private and shared spaces. This kind of social and formal instability is characteristic of a lot of Sam's work, whether it's a street lamp welded to a coffee table, an oversized triangular bed, or a tiny plexiglass sauna, Sam's work introduces a kind of friction into routine domestic life, which feels both provisional and somehow hedonistic. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sam. He's as frank and convivial as the furniture he designs, and it was following his suggestion that I made the trip over there to meet him in the first place, which I'm grateful for because it led to a couple other very special conversations, which I'm excited to share with you in the coming weeks. All right, so here it is, my conversation with Sam Chermayev. I hope you like it. So this is Johanna and I's flat. Come on in. Although we don't live together, um, but we own it together. Okay, I was going to ask, because she's your working partner. She's my working partner, not my... Not your romantic partner. We both have two kids with other other people. Okay. Um, Yeah, make yourself comfy. Amazing. Do you want more coffee, or I'm going to make a little more? Um, Sure, I would love some, actually. Make a whole pot. Your apartment is exactly how I imagined it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Um, I don't even know how to try and explain it. Um, But (laughs) there are no, as is the case in all the flats in the building, there are no partitions. It's just an open plan. We have this mezzanine hovering above us. And a whole kind of smattering of all kinds of furniture children's toys on the ground, what appear to be art objects casually standing in the corner, Um, and then bizarre experimental um, kitchen islands. Not so bizarre, I mean, it's so straightforward. (laughs) This is a a giant stainless steel cylinder. And it's a stove. 
with stove elements protruding from it. That's all it is, really. And then there's yeah, but you can put you know you can put your craft at the bottom, of course. <laughs> which is there's this massive cutting block, this really thick, chunky cutting block that's propped up on a a white metal column and that's sitting which on top is of the, the bio trash which i'm really proud of oh my god so inside the column is the, is the compost is the compost which means like of course and i somebody pointed out to me which i didn't even notice that i don't have a kitchen counter anywhere huh. yeah which is just i didn't think about it that much and then this is what is this anodized steel galvanized it's a paper towel galvanized, holder. right that's all it is yeah, but it holds all the, it holds the rest of them below. I know, it's like a meter 20 tall paper towel holder. It has a thing besides that, it's like obviously a fetish object and, and like silly. Uh -huh. It has like a really useful effect that I didn't notice. It, basically, like it's so heavy and ridiculous that you can't move it. So you never lose, you know how like when you're cooking, everybody <laughs> has this, like you put the paper towels somewhere, uh -huh. like in all paper towels, you just move them and then you think to yourself, where are the paper towels? If you make a steel, if you put them in a steel column, they're always there. And I find that very helpful. So in one of the, in your recent book, which I think is Beasts, no? Yeah, true, true, true. Um, there's an interview you did with the curator, Alexandra Cunningham Cameron. And she had, this <clears throat> she had this way of summarizing your work. She said if she had to define your life and your design philosophy, she would say it's like a pile of toys. Everything has potential and nothing is essential. And like literally there is a pile of toys here in the corner, but everything else feels like that. It all feels like uh, in a way this absurdist game you're playing with the conventions of domestic life. Yeah, I mean, I. Can so, I close the window? Actually? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, maybe I'm lying to myself. And I'm sure she's right. Nonetheless, I feel like, no, no, I'm really practical. I really want to say, like, no, no, Matthew, I'm a practical person. <laughs> and I constantly say There's that. actually a tent in the corner here. Yeah, There's a giant true. boulder on caster wheels. There's a hammock. Sorry to cut you off. I just no, to... it's okay. It's okay. It's a... Uh... The hammock is from Bless and is fox fur. It's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, continue. No, I just like, you know, I try to make it practical. Like I try to be like, hey, it's a cutting block that you stand around and you cut your things and you put it in. And it does seem absurd, but in fact, like we can like really have a long, serious meeting at my said cutting board slash bio trash thing. And you can like cook with friends around this stove and so, but then, you know, I mean, another person described it, which Alexandra would agree with, I think, is like, it's all indoor camping. Mm -hmm. And indoor camping is maybe the same thing, right? And indoor camping just means like, it means being outside in, a, in like a kind of sense, like in the, in the way that like we're in this, as you said before, like the last apartment, like a fully glazed space that kind of feels like a balcony. I don't know. I, but I try, I'm... I try to pretend that it's practical. Although you're not the only person who says that. Everybody says that it's not essential. And it's not, it's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's not that it's not essential, it's just there's this, um, there's a kind of trickster, kind of jokery going on that seems to undermine the routines that we follow every day uh, in terms of how we live 
inside with each other. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that's like true. how we use a kitchen or how we use a toilet or where we sleep and what constitutes a bedroom. <laughs> All these things seem up for grabs with you. That's totally, they are up for grabs. I mean, and the, you spend a lot of time thinking about it, you find like new things that you're like, wait a minute, do we mean that? Like, do we, if, you know this love of Zizek thing about toilets? You know, where like toilets become ideological tools and that you'd think that toilets would be about like the efficacy of taking a shit. Mm -hmm. They are not, right? Can you just, can, can you recount that whole anecdote? Because it's such a beautiful one. Sure. <laughs> sure. I can, I totally can. Like he, he basically like, he says like toilets are different throughout the world, yet, yet we all basically you do do both the same the same activity happens on all toilets so like there's no fundamental reason why they should be different like yet we we think of them as completely practical devices and then like he admits that there's a big reduction but if you take like the french world the anglo-saxon world and the german world they have three radically different toilets and and like it's a kind of maybe a racist idea whatever but you know the the German old type has like the hole in the front. So you take a crap and then you see it and you can smell it. And it's like, according to him, like the, the, like the ideal of hermeneutics. And it's like, you sniff it, it's poetry, it's metaphysics. It's, and like essentially he's like, it's conservative, which is definitely true in this, like in the political sense. And then like, the French have like the hole in the back and he like likens that to the guillotine. So you take a shit, it's gone, both political left, right? And then like the Anglo-Saxon world has, has literally like a bowl full of water and you put, take a shit and it floats and it's in the middle, right? And like that, you know, you can disagree or not. I mean, actually you can't disagree. Like those are, those are objectively three different ways of, of, shitting. of, of shitting. And yet, but they, the fact that they're connected to like, are like the ideology of those places or like a perceived ideology. I mean, you can certainly object to like, maybe Germany's not conservative or maybe French is not left. I mean, I suppose you can discuss that, but what's interesting, what his interesting observation is, is that like toilets are thinking tools, like, to, like there's, and so if you take that logic, like so are tables, certainly kitchens are, and like there's so many decisions that got made to make kitchens the way they are that are, you know, partly about like who cooks, what you cook, who's like the master, who's the servant, like all, all those things. And then there's like a whole pile of things about industry that people like didn't really notice, mm. right? Like it's really architects and now, including myself sometimes, like draw kitchens as like lines as 60 centimeter offsets from walls. I mean, that's what, that's what a kitchen, kitchens became like, and then you can have like another line that's 120 if you want to have an island in a big house, right? So like, and you're, that comes from like an industry norm thing that comes from Cruise Chef or Frankfurt Kitchen. The Frankfurt or, Kitchen, exactly. Which is in a way a pet peeve of yours. You hold a certain amount of disdain for the Frankfurt Kitchen and everything that it entailed. Well, disdain is not the, disdain is not like the right word. It's more like, it's more like the toilet thing. Like, I don't have a real preference about one of those toilets. Like, I don't, I mean, I grew up in New York and I definitely had a toilet bowl where it floated. But that's not like, a, I don't say like it's better or worse. It's, it's, more, it's more that I have a disdain for the fact that we go through life and design, like taking those kind of things for granted. 
Mm. Right? I mean, Frank Rare Kitchen is awesome. I love the drawers. I think it's super cool that there's a desk. I like the idea of efficiency in general. I'm not against that in any way. But, but I think we don't think about it enough. And I realized that and I realized like, hey, it's a, it's a real opportunity to do it differently. Because I think that actually we're not so isolated. Certainly, I haven't dated anybody in the, ever who like cooked for me. And, and like I sat in the living room waiting, which was like the Frankfurt kitchen would imply, mm -hmm. right? Every, I don't have any clients who don't want to like cook with their friends. Um, I think everybody does. So I think like something changed and we could change with it. And that takes time and I'm happy to make that effort. It turns out to be a terrible business, but there's a different story altogether. And maybe an interesting story to follow. I mean, I'll just wait for the, the siren to pass. Um, <clears throat> I mean, all the objects in this apartment, they feel in a way like playful obstacles. Like they want to be in your way slightly and you have to maneuver around them to get to where you want to go. And in a way, how you're describing the kitchen or the bathroom or just your understanding of the, the didactic potential of objects is that, and this is maybe going back to an essay in the first book on your work, um, Creatures, right. where Dieter Wollstrata, he's talking about things <laughs> and how there is this line about how things don't really become I guess a part of our conscious awareness until they break down somehow or until they become in some way inefficient. And I feel like I'm very aware of all the things in the apartment here in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be in a more conventional layout where the kitchen becomes a kind of, a kind of um, ambient presence as does the bathroom. You don't necessarily think about the toilet as you should on it. But I think after this conversation, we all will start thinking about <laughs> how we should. Sure. But I think the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because inefficiency is a kind of luxury in a way. And this is a very luxurious apartment. Admittedly. <laughs> um, so I want to talk more about, I guess, how you came to this way of thinking about design and what you see its purpose as being. Because it's not something that you could necessarily roll out in a standardized way for a lot of people. I know, I try to roll it out and to, <laughs> to well, constantly, but... Um, Do you want to sit down or are you... Sure, to, yeah. no, I'm, I'm whatever. Yeah. I, I, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of things in there, in the, the kind of question that you just asked. I mean, notably, it's very luxurious, but, but to step back, I think that everybody luxury or otherwise can have, let's say, a little bit of friction with, with people, places, things, objects, buildings, and have to deal, having to deal with it a little bit is not a bad thing, right? I think, I think having to kind of, okay, you should move something or you should, you know, something's a little wobbly and then you have to slow down and act a little slower, you know, that's like, that I think is important for, for consciousness to like get to the toilet thing. Like Zizek's observation, but Zizek's observation generally, not, not to get into his politics one way or another, but is, is su just suggesting in a straightforward way 
that we should not take everything for granted. Like, and I, th and I think so much is pushing us toward that and modernism pushed us towards that. And modernism is about, and modernism is like something I care about. Like I come from a family of modernists. It's not, and I still have this like desire to make very funny, weird things that make friction for everyone. But then I look at my publisher and the magazine Apartamento and think about like, actually it's individuals and actually it's like little stories and it's little messes and like the success of all interiors and at the moment are like specifics, right? Like specific wobbles, specific things in the way, specific like bits of dirt like behind the ears of a house. And so like, it turns out to be luxurious because it's sort of expensive to rethink those things all the time. But I don't want it to be luxurious. So, I mean, you mentioned you come from a family of modernists. There's such a, an influence or direct lineage in terms of you being an architect. The fact that your grandfather, Serge Chermayev, um, was an influential architect, uh, born in Russia, moved to the UK and then onto the US, where he was, I think, teaching at MIT and Harvard and Yale. And um, his son, Ivan Tremayev, your father, was a notable graphic designer, founding partner of the New York-based design studio Tremayev and Geismar. And I mean, he authored logos like the Showtime logo, the Smithsonian Institute, the publisher, HarperCollins. I think he presided over the design of the NBC Peacock as yeah, well. Yeah, I did. And then his brother, your uncle, Peter Chemayev is a prominent architect also in the US who's known for his design of aquariums. aquariums. I know. It's, <laughs> I mean, so I, there's a lot of foundation here for you to set out and become an architect yourself. To what degree were you immersed in the world of design growing up? And how did that influence your decision to study architecture in the first place? Um, I, I didn't know it because I didn't have anything to compare it with, but I, I was. I mean, I got dragged around to look at things uh, of all shapes and sizes, buildings, design, you know, since birth. So I had, you know, and I, I didn't know that that was special. Um, but for sure, come time to go to, to study, it was like, what do I know about? And it's like, I know about this, let's do that. When I was really little, I wanted to be an investment banker because, and then my uncle interrogated that. My uncle, the architect, interrogated that. My father never did. He thought it was hilarious and thought it was a great idea. But my uncle was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, they have the coolest houses. And he was like, I'm not sure that's true, but if you want to make houses and you like the houses, then be an architect. He later regretted that advice because he's like, it's such a pain in the ass to be an architect. But, <laughs> but he did point out that I wanted to be a banker because I liked fancy houses with like, my, my dad had like two friends with big houses that were, that were great. One was by Gordon Bunchef that I was like super, super into as a little kid um, in the Hamptons. But, and you grew up on the upper East side of New York? Yeah. Okay, which is a specific environment. I think most people would understand what that means, but can you talk more about the kind of 
the context of that, what it means to grow up in that place? The Upper East Side is, a, is like a really, really privileged place, simply. Like, let's just start there. Like, the Upper East Side is like a place where there's a lot of rich people. Um, and I went to this like kind of lefty school with also, you know, quite well off people. And a lot of them became, you know, lawyers that do good things as opposed to bad things. But basically they, you know, I grew up with a lot of privilege and my father and mother, my father somehow got like did really well as a graphic designer. So he, uh, he lived very comfortably. And he also like tricked me into thinking that like you can make money being like a ab making things abstract, right? I mean that's like his, like that's you know that's what modernism is. But particularly in his graphic design in the logo world, like he made one that you didn't mention, but like Chase, which is an octagon. Yes, you the know, blue octagon. It's a Chase blue octagon, Bank. which has obviously nothing to do with banking. Um, but he somehow convinced as a as a man younger than you and I are now, I think like he convinced them to like just say like logo is anything like it has nothing to do with the purpose right and so like true true abstraction and so anyway I digress now but the Upper East Side was this like it was a it was a very comfy place I guess not I guess I mean it was nice I mean on the other hand it was New York in the 80s so that was also it had its own I didn't get to walk to school by myself until until the 90s, which I would, I would like my kids in Berlin to walk to school when they're younger. But, uh, but is that what you mean? I think so. And then you know, after high school, you decided to study architecture, not on the East Coast, but in Texas, yeah. which seems like a, um, a reaction against that kind of privileged context, a, a different kind of environment, where in effect you were part of the minority. <laughs> I mean, it's the only place that at the time that I could think of where I could like contribute to diversity slash be part of the minority in that sense. And Texas was great. Like I wanted to, I wanted to make stuff. I, you know, I had this idea like very early on, like even before I started school, like I want to get this done and have my own office and build houses. And, you know, I had all these dreams, which I have many, many years after I thought I would kind of achieved, but um, it, uh, yeah, I wanted to get away. And then I went from Texas, like before I even graduated, I went to Japan and now I live in Germany, like partly to escape my family, there's obviously. This, there's this really great article in this magazine called O32C yeah. uh, by Carson Chan. And I just have to read some of it out. I think this is probably going to be, I don't know, I don't do this to embarrass you or anything. It's a, I can take it. It's a great, Carson Chan is a great writer. <laughs> and it's a really true. good article. Um, that I'll he also, he's also a client in this building now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. So this is Chan writing about you. Um, by Sam's own admission from childhood till university was a sustained period of reckless delinquency. And even afterwards, growing ambitions were always combined with the intensity of immediate experience. Um, he's quoting you here when you said, I love cars and motorcycles. And um, you had a 1972 Honda CB200T, a 1980 Moto Guzzi Le Mans 2, a 1972 Red MGB. These are things that don't make sense to me, but I'm sure some listeners will understand. 
Very nice motorbikes and two convertibles. Not uh, all at once, just for the record. Okay. <laughs> that was like a cycle through. A 19- Carson makes me sound more luxurious <laughs> than I am. A 1968 white Chevelle and uh, hand-me-down 1986 gunmetal BMW 733i. Pretty much simultaneously, when he was in architecture school at the University of Austin, University of Texas in Austin. And th- I mean, to me, this must have been, I can think back to, we can all think back to when we were in undergrad and um, probably in the most volatile period of our lives, where everything is moving at a very high speed and every possibility is before us. And I'm curious when things started to crystallize for you. And it sounded like this move to Japan was really formative. It was. It was great. I mean, I really needed a master that wasn't my, my parents. <laughs> I don't mean like a master in terms of like getting control. I mean like a sort of guide into like how to think about the world. And Sejima really like provided that. Like I knew from like the first day there, even though she like didn't say a word that like, oh, that lady has like a clear vision of how to like think through what, what she should be doing. And so that, those years I loved so much. I mean, it's not, it's not such an easy place. Like you basically, you have to work all the time. You were saying in another interview that you basically lived there four days a week. You went home three days a week. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's basically true. And I liked it. I mean, Uh that's the thing. Like I did, I mean, I think I could have gone home more and I, I like, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed at the time she chain smoked and I still chain smoke. You're smoking and, right now just for the, for the record. <laughs> and basically, basically like she had this like deep belief in study, right? So like, you know, you'd be doing a competition, every one of those competitions. And it was like the, you had to present options but basically every day until you had to tell Sejima, like, we cannot make options anymore. Like, we have to start making the final drawings. And then, like, two more days of options would come. Like, after you said, like, no, Sejima, we've got to, like, we're not going to make it for this submission. And that, that will to, like, try things out is, like, something that, I mean, my father had this, statement which is totally different which is like I never had a good idea it took longer than 15 minutes like I couldn't like in several interviews he says and he said it to me all the time and he also made fun of me he's like it takes you 10 years to make something cool it takes me 15 minutes you're an idiot (laughs) basically I mean you know and my uncle I mean my father my father just loved like how fast it was and actually that doesn't work for me so the instant I, gratification of graphic design versus architecture. Exactly. And so I think I, maybe that's like what, where the story is with, like, I certainly went through many periods of life where I like drank too much and did too many exciting things all the time as opposed to sitting and thinking. But the, but the, the other, the kind of stedium thread of trying to like study is, became like as important as that. It sounds like you went to Japan to be disciplined in a way. I mean, first of all, I'm not disciplined now. So like, let's, let's just <laughs> It's a certain out. kind of discipline. I mean, it, it's a kind of discipline that's often frowned on now. And I, I, I wonder when you reflect on that experience, how you see it today, because it's effectively a kind of servitude to the discipline of architecture, which 
in some ways is laudable and beautiful, but in others is a real abuse of one's own labor, I guess. And there's this tension now in how to understand the way one ought to give one's life to one's work and to what degree. Yeah, that's like, that's a huge question that I don't have the answer to. I mean, everybody who, who did the dedication part and then looks at like their own colleagues now who are younger and think it's like, wait a minute, don't you want to like stay up all night and like figure this out? And they're like, no. (laughs) And, And then, but I mean, I, I'm not stupid. So I don't say like, well, you should, this is the right way to do it. Like, okay, fine. Then you should live your life. And you know, and it's not that the people in my office don't like work really hard and it's not that they don't care about it, but indeed, like very rarely do people stay on all night in the office. Mm-hmm. Like, very, very rarely. Although I miss it. I'm, but I look back just for myself, like I look back, not just the dedication, but also there are some real side, side good things of dedication, which is like, I didn't have to worry about anything. Like it didn't matter how much you got paid if you couldn't leave the office and spend any money. It didn't matter. I know, I know that that's like a kind of weird thing to say, but like it was extreme to the point where like you didn't have to worry about relationships. You didn't have to worry about, like it was just really nice to be so focused. It's not, very, on anything. it's monastic in a way. Yeah. And that was great. I missed, I missed that. I mean, now life is like, I didn't, now I have two kids. Like now I have like a, a lot of stuff going on and I love my kids and I love all my stuff and I love this house right but I also have to like pay, pay rent in it and I mean there I also lived in this monastic I lived in Moriyama house which was like which is stand I stand by as like one of the nicest houses in the history of time so I interviewed Becca and Lemoine a while <laughs> back who did a documentary about that house listeners will be familiar with sure it's um, a great film too yeah and he's a great he's an amazing guy my neighbor Mr. Moriyama Huh. I mean, it, it must have been quite a otherworldly experience working in Japan. I mean, it seems so divorced in a way from the reality you're living in now and most people's realities. And I guess another surreal aspect of the job was when you assisted in curating the Venice Biennale with Sejima. That was the most fun thing that I ever did. How did that happen? How did it ha- what you, Well, Sejima got invited and I and I had been there for many, many years. And Sejima, Sejima liked hanging out with me, one thing. She trusted me about design. She knew that I could talk. And she doesn't love speaking, particularly like in foreign contexts. So she was very happy to like have me as a kind of trusted mouthpiece. And she works like really intuitively, like extremely intuitively. I mean, it's of course programmatic. And like whenever you show an option in design, it's like, how big is that? How tall is it? What does it do? Right? That for sure. So it's, it's pragmatic, but it's also not like there's no metaphor. And, and somehow she and I had like a really good way of communicating such that like I could translate her thought to like another architect or a guest or a, a participant in the biennial. And so it was like, oh, it was so fun. And people love her so much. So like that love gets extended onto like, if you work for her and you're, and you're like, Sejima maybe thinks that this, <laughs> people are really nice and people really listen. And it was so, 
oh, I, had, I mean, I, I hate to put it so bluntly, but like I had a lot of like power in a nice way over my colleagues and they had mutual respect and actually like a ton of friends that I have now, like a, come from that time. Like Thomas Demand, who you just met, like Thomas did something because Sejima loved Thomas. And like I saw Thomas yesterday, like uh, Arnold Brandehuber, it's like a friend who was introduced by Thomas at that time. Like, and I, actually like that's actually why I moved to Berlin because Berlin had this aura of like as a kind of center of Europe. And I had the task on Sejima's behalf to be like, what architecture is good in the world besides what we know in Japan? Mm. But it's not so different from what, like, what you do, which is like spend some time having to think about like, what's good in the world, like what's interesting. questioning in your work, as we were discussing before, are the kind of the fundamentals of domestic life. Um, and I wonder how, or what you learned from your time at Sena uh, and how that's being applied in the work you do now. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing that Sana does, as I already said, but I'll say like another way, like in the Sejima's word is like options. Like I want to see more options, like more like, could you do that? Could you do that? You know, like the, the Rolex Learning Center, for example, is like a waving mountain, to put it. Well, there's a lot of different ways to describe that thing. A Swiss cheese, a waving mountain, what, you know, many, many things. But that site is a big flat site where you could build a tower, you could build like a ring, you could build, you know, the, the square meters in relation to the site is like pretty flexible. Yet, and the program is many, many diverse things. Like it's a theater, it's a cafe, it's a library, it's a, another theater, it's a student center, it's, it's a lot. And so she would, she would make us be like, let's make a tower, let's see what does a tower look like in the corner? What does a ring look like? What is, it, what is, the, what is a circle? What is a sphere? Like, how do all, like what are all the possibilities? And that, let's say like that way of exploration is is like fundamental to figuring out like, okay, well, what's a stove, <laughs> right? You can also do that, you can do that with anything. And that's, that's a really, like a really nice way to like start the work day every single day, like, hmm, let's redraw it. I mean, it's wildly inefficient. And like, back to the general privilege, like it's, it's a real luxury to do that. And we regularly spend like way, way too much time on you know, everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's reminding me, and I think this figure comes up again and again in the conversations I've had, George Perec, who has this mantra, which I think listeners are probably going to be rolling their eyes because I feel like I brought it up recently, but um, question your teaspoons. <laughs> and there's so many different ways of exhausting a place or exhausting uh, one's understanding of any given scenario or routine. And I feel like that's exactly what's being done in your work now. Um, I'm interested in how you 
experiment at the scale of furniture in exploring these ideas of domesticity and convention and how you then, in the case of the building we're in now, scale those interrogations up and to what degree you see yourself continuing at the architectural scale? I think that the furniture is rather scaled down from, from I mean, the building in a way and my time at Sana was like more was like the focus, right? I mean, I went to architecture school, I made buildings. In architecture school, I made buildings at Sana, and then, okay, there was this curation, we did the Serpentine Pavilion, but I thought about like larger programs, right? And Sana, Sana's always trying to be like, what's the program? I already mentioned like the dimension thing, but it's like, what's the story? What happens there? So like, and then, but then as Carson pointed out in that thing that you read earlier, I get very impatient, so I'm trying, I start thinking about like smaller and smaller programs. So like going down to the paper towel thing that I mentioned earlier, you know, just like, okay, this is a program that you need and something, it's like a little problem that's unresolved. And I think that it's either ugly or it's not working. And how can I do it better for someone, for some, you know, and sometimes I find the someone. So sometimes I ask, you know, I'm big with architects, so I ask other architects, like, hey, don't you need a paper towel holder for 300 bucks? Um, and people will be like, if it's a good idea, sure. And then I will think it through, and that leads, and that's the same story with like, okay, here's a community. Here's a community of people, how do I make something that where communities interlock? So, I'm, in this building is about like, let's say like smashing people together, not, like, that sounds more violent than I mean, but, but maybe there is some violence in it. So I want, like, I want to all the time bring, bring people together, which is like to go back, not to like digress totally, but like my grandfather, which he died when I was 15, but somehow I'm doing the same thing. He wrote this book, famous book called Community and Privacy. And basically like this building is like a manifestation of his logic maybe more like sauna aesthetics in his logic, where like a community is together and you have private corners, but also very much see your neighbor. And like this, this kind of question that he was answering in the context of like mid-rise suburbia at a certain moment in that, but in like a dense city is being recreated here. But that same thing is true of like a round stove or a cutting block, I think, I hope, I want. The first image I saw of your work, I was in a bookshop uh, with students in Ghent, and one of my students handed me this book and said, I think you'll like this. And I opened, it was this book, uh, Creatures. I opened it, and this is the image, the first image I saw. Oh, unfortunately, it has a picture of me naked <laughs> in it. And Gracefully concealed by a cherry blossom tree. But the picture, just for listeners, is um, we're on a rooftop, and at the center of the image is this cherry blossom tree growing from the rooftop. It's a concrete roof and well, there's three naked people. On the left there's a man hosing himself down. Uh, in the middle someone's just emerged from what looks like a plexiglass cube. Uh, it, is a, it is a plexiglass cube. And then there's a woman inside the cube. It's steamy in there. It looks like a makeshift sauna. And um, there's something to me so beautiful about this image. To me, it looks like th three people are making do. 
and finding in a relatively a potentially hostile environment, this, this concrete rooftop, a little piece of utopia together, uh, provisionally. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, there's something almost post-apocalyptic about it. Um, but what it, the reason I'm bringing it up now is because I think it also speaks to this idea of um, understanding somehow our environment is being shared and understanding um, the act of living as a, some kind of collective endeavor in a way. And I think that to some extent that attitude comes through at a lot of the objects you've designed as well. Where, and even in the space we're in now where, yes, it's a private apartment um, amongst many other private apartments, but there is always this overlap of ownership, whether it's on the roof that we walk through or the views were afforded into others, other people's private places and the literal kind of intersection of a volume of someone else's property into your space. Yeah, the physical center of this apartment is someone else's bedroom. And it's kind of like we're all figuring it out together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, it doesn't quite, maybe it doesn't quite work all the time, but um, the environment we're in, whether it's the rooftop or the apartment, is to some degree shared. Um, and to me, that's very exciting, but also st still in a kind of propositional state. And I, <laughs> I wonder, is it important for you to bring it into a more resolved reality? <laughs> and what I mean by that is, outside of the, the private market, outside of the um, the kind of rarefied group of clients that you work with and outside of the purely conceptual, is it important to ground it somehow or is it more about the production of an image that then provokes uh, different ways of thinking? Because I think e either approach is valid. I'm just curious as an architect to what degree you want to make these ideas even more material or more extensive. Yeah, I mean, of course I want to make it more extensive and more material and more... I want to reach more people because I think, I assume that like the provocations like suggest that there'll be more provocations and more development. So I, I don't know that I differentiate like totally between those ways of being. I certainly care about like the physical object of steel, concrete, plexiglass, etc. Very, very much. Like I measure my daily satisfaction in like by the pound, so to speak, <laughs> not the sterling, but the by weight. Um, I would, I would like it to be, and I really believe in it. So that's that's the thing. I believe in the provisional nature. I also think that life is kind of provisional, meaning like and post-apocalyptic. I don't know exactly what you said, but I was like, I want to. I want that to be like the cover of my next book. But I mean, in a word, it's camping. Yeah, I think that that's what life is like, and I think that we overvalue security and efficiency in, and like as a result, we lose 
we lose like any like sense like we like are then like like when you have endless security and endless efficiency like what do you do right like camping and like that that sauna requires that you engage with it and like you have to be there and you have to do something and you have to experience something and you have to deal with other people and you have to you know go because the cherry blossoms coming and then it's a nice day and then it's a perfect time for a sauna and then so like suddenly there's a story that's in your life and I think that that works at bigger scale I hope I hope that it does I want it to in answer to your question absolutely it just as you're talking about this it strikes me that in order to think this way one needs to come from a place of security and stability absolutely and again like this isn't to um, kind of call you out or shame you in any way, but I feel like there is a there is a certain necessity or requirement for one to be able to enjoy the uprootedness and instability of a kind of um, camping mentality in life. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and it and it drives other people crazy sometimes, like in in personal relations, of course. You know, like it drives even my partner crazy, right? Because I'm like, well, let's try this and then we'll try that. And then, you know, it's sort of, and that, that actually makes people, can make people really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it does come from like a place of great privilege. But I think if I, I hope, the desire is to refine it so that people can step in and out of it and to like have smaller negotiations. And maybe that's where the furniture like starts to work really you know it's like but the scale so it works at like many many scales and i'm not interested in like forcing people to be uncomfortable right that's not and i'm not interested in saying like you know this building still works like on a pure capitalist basis for everybody i mean in fact everybody's doing really well myself included but the the kind of notion that that you provide this opportunity for like a joyous instability I think actually, I think it applies even more to people with less privilege. Meaning like, in theory, you can have this vase, like let's say right next to us, there's like a little stick that holds some flowers, which is obviously a product that can be for anybody and is a little shaky and like, but suggests, celebrates the flower. So we can talk about like what it's doing, but it works for everybody and that little engagement and little instability and you have to balance it slightly. I want to like offer that to like every single person in the world, right? And I want to give that as a choice because I think that like the, it's a privilege to be able to think about the world that way, of course, but it's also, it's also a problem that nobody else feels that they can. And I think that that's also like a political, societal, cultural choice that's not necessarily given. And it, you know, like advanced capitalism makes you forget that. It makes you forget community. You like start to look out only for yourself, regardless of your state of privilege. So I, I, hope, I hope that my privilege like helps other people in some way and not just the privileged. Is that a fair answer to that yeah, question? Absolutely. What do you think? No, I, don't, I, I don't I I have to say just like I'm I'm really interested in how also how to get out of the like rarefied world, you know? I I would like to just to say I I I I didn't mean in that book 
that you that you that that cause you to discover what I do to suggest that like this is only for the rarefied world. I mean, I I did I I suppose, but it's it's kind of can be really depressing because mm -hmm. I don't mean that. Mm -hmm. No, I mean I don't know why it's. I don't know why it's front of mind for me. I think I've spoken with other um, furniture designers recently, um, soft baroque, um, and that's a question I didn't really get to with them. But for them and for you, the the pieces they're bordering on artwork of some kind or sculpture, and they are a kind of critique of something of of certain routines or habits we have. And they operate on those terms, but less as commercial objects. And I think I'm just curious about the role of the designer in that context, where you're experimenting through a kind of social critique, through these very custom and very expensive objects to try and tell us something about how we live. And I'm just curious, like, what what next or what do you do after that or is that it and if that's it that's also fine and I think I don't know I can I'm kind of like a dog with a bone with this subject for some reason and I should just let it go no you shouldn't you shouldn't <laughs> let it go and and I don't I also like could accidentally let it go uh -huh. and you know it's tempting to talk about market forces and yada 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 but which are that's not your question it's more like what's my role in it I mean the only thing that I'm trying to do about it is to like stop caring about craft in terms of customization, in terms of expense. Like, there's nothing about it, anything that I do, that needs to be expensive, right? It's, so it's, I'm not, I don't care about, about it being, like, fine, right? I mean, that's not, that's clear from the work, right? It's, as you say, it's like, imp can be, feel improvised, it feels like camping. So it's more, I have to figure out a way to communicate outside of of the bubble right i mean and that's really tough and i haven't figured that out right i haven't figured out how to make it appeal i mean I, if i could i would close my office in a second and go work for like a white goods company like <laughs> not if i could like if they asked if, and, and i should and I do actually ask what white goods. You're talking about like washing machines, yeah. dishwashers, yes, washing stoves. stoves. But things where you don't care about the white goods means like you don't care about the brand is not that important. Mm -hmm. It's just like objects that we live with. Like let's just make them better. I would love to do that. Like absolutely. And I so it's not. It's certainly not about having my name on things, and it's certainly not about. I, I have to figure it out. I mean, maybe people will listen to this podcast. I, I have no idea. It's, it's, it feels like our world of, of this, let's say, like high design, for lack of a better term, is, uh, is really like, is getting smaller, but feels like big. every time I try to shoot out of it, I end up being like, oh, we know about that. It's fine. Like, comes back. Like, oh, that's like a design thing. Or even when we work for like, bigger companies it's like oh you just do the special you just do the special weird funny stuff mm -hmm. as opposed to like the washing machine for 100,000 people and I want to do the 100,000 not not for any reason other than that I want 100,000 people's lives to be better as opposed to 
a hundred rich people's. And I, but so you're right to like pick a bone with that, like that issue. It's a, it sucks. It's really true of like home design, like individual home designs. Like, you know, there's either like custom, you know, we just finished a little house like outside of Berlin that's pretty inexpensive, very custom. I, I really like it. It's like for, I would say a middle-class guy, um, very, you know, just like a, a normal guy, a nice guy. And, but like to kind of, to scale that up, as soon as we start talking with developers, it suddenly becomes like a different, suddenly like you immediately move into the market of rarefied. And I can't figure out how to go like downward market-wise. Because it requires to some degree the kind of efficiency that your practice is resistant to. I don't know, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't feel like that. And it, it, it seems like that. I know, I know what you mean. And I certainly publish books that look inefficient. But, you know, then when I propose, for example, to like the downstairs is a really nice company called New Tendency that like rents the corner shop. And I propose to them, they make, they make a pretty basic shelf. And I propose like basically putting two screws in it to make a bookend so the books don't fall off the edge of the shelf like as basic and efficient thing as you could possibly do. And they don't, they're like, don't you want to make a fun chair? And so I, I guess it's, I'm trying to blame somebody else for something that you're trying to blame me for. You know, I'm trying to be like, the world doesn't let me make efficient things. And you're trying to be like, but you don't make efficient things. And, and, and so I don't, I don't know what comes first whether it's like the fun parts or the, maybe I just have to fight more for the, for the efficiency part. Is but that true? I don't I mean, know, because I feel like the, it's not necessarily, I guess, just about efficiency, but it's about a certain kind of economy of scale. Um, well, that's something, that's totally different. Yeah, and I, I just wonder, I think the big question is how do you find the joy and escape and possibility for real critique at this larger scale? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, part of it is, and a lot of people say this to me, you know, like, why don't you just like try to sell it and make it, you know, make it bigger and like do that. And I, and I fail miserably at, you know, like it's this totally stupid example, but we did like a little Christmas sale of like stuff that we had lying around, right? Just like prototypes and things like that. And I'm such a bad businessman that I couldn't like even, you know, just, just like figuring out the packaging and delivery and so forth and like getting the bills organized. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like it's, I don't mean that people got their goods. It's not right. But I couldn't like, I couldn't scale myself that design, but now we're going to do some work for some bigger companies that maybe they produce, and not maybe, they will produce more. And those new tendency downstairs will sell a thousand shelves with bookends and so on. So it's going to, maybe it'll get there. I had to earn, maybe you have to earn that? Is that possible? I'm hoping. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe this line of questioning is um, just not the right one. I mean, I'm just thinking now about the introduction to Beast that Jack Self wrote where he's kind of embracing the anti-functionalist sensibility of the work, saying that it's resisting tend a tendency towards rational economy, 
all the objects are the wrong shape to be space-saving. You have a triangular bed, which you're kind of infamous for. I know. Um, but you need a very big room to accommodate. It's too expensive to be mass-produced. It contributes nothing to labor-saving activities. Nothing's hidden. Technology is self-evident. It superficially resembles this kind of French school descended from Lacaton Vassal, except you're not interested in cheapness as a virtue. You're interested in directness. And I think what Jack is saying is that you're seducing us towards alternatives, which means that the work itself, it remains rhetorical. It remains more kind of image and provocation than it does an object of a typical home. And I just, I think that really is the question. Is that something that you agree with and embrace? Or uh, is that in fact an interpretation you're resistant to? I'm resistant to, but I think I, I think I might spend some time thinking about it. I mean, I, you're right. You're right. I mean, I, I sell it to myself first as, as something that is functional and real and practical. And then I sell it to the world as an image, as in a provocation. Right. So like, oh, indeed, I should own it. I do own it because I think it's fine. I mean, I really respect Zizek for making the observation. I don't expect him to fix the toilet, mm. right? I don't expect him to say like, this is the toilet of my ideology. Although maybe he should. Um, maybe, I, maybe I should design the toilet of Zizek's talk to Zizek. But to come back, yeah, all right, all right. I, I will, I mean, Jack's right. And it is that, right? It's not, it's not labor saving. It's not, because I don't think, I don't think we should save labor at the moment in like, I don't think that in like Western Europe that like that's the issue. I think the issue is like that we're isolated from saving and from efficiency. So I think that like we have no community, we have no, like we, we start to lose our sense of self because we have no, like our iPhones, you know, Nicholas Mach, this friend of mine said like the only time that you're in like private space is like walking in the rain because you can't look at your phone, right? It's like the, really the only time when you're like actually in private space, which is to say like outside in public space is the new private space because you're like engaged in all this like kind of efficiency or labor saving or like let's say control. And I want people to like lose control a little bit not just as a provocation, but because I think it's maybe just from my own privilege, but basically I think that losing control is healthy. Sam, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Oh. Oh, that was great. Good, good. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I host the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to Sam Chermayev. Thanks as always to Skandalin. And if you're still here, thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.